Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, we have a guest that I'm extremely excited to bring on for you guys today. Um, he's, he's somebody that I've looked up to since I was 19 years old, first getting into this. He's actually one of the first people that I ever heard talking about uh, macro periodization, about the uh, nutritional hierarchy or the training hierarchy, because he invented this muscle, muscle and strength pyramids. Um, he is a pro natural bodybuilder. He's one of the first people educating on YouTube and coaching natural bodybuilders and talking about flexible dieting in the right way. Um, and now he's not only a pro natural bodybuilder and a coach to many pro bodybuilders, but he's also a uh, has his PhD um, in strength and conditioning and is a research fellow for AUT at the Sports Performance Research Institute in New Zealand. So he's in the trenches. Um, he's multiple published multiple peer-reviewed articles in exercise science and nutrition journals and, and writes for commercial fitness publications. He's taught undergraduate and graduate level nutrition and exercise science, and he speaks internationally at academic and commercial conferences for fitness, nutrition, strength and conditioning. Um, he also has a BS in fitness and wellness, an MS in exercise science, and a second master's in sports nutrition, um, and again, a PhD in strength and conditioning. So his education is off the charts. Um, he his experience is off the charts. He he is one of the people that's probably doing the most influence for educating coaches in the space without a doubt. Um, and this is why I hold him to such a high standard and I look up to him so much. And he's been a mentor from afar for so long because everything he he seems to put out not only is well-versed and has the most knowledge behind it um, in science and research behind it, but he does it with integrity. He never has any other reason besides to help people and educate people to a deeper level um, on his agenda, which makes him so much more respectful um, and so much more like what you guys, the people listening to this podcast, love about this show and about most content that you guys absorb, knowing that you're a listener of mine. So you guys are really going to appreciate this. Um, if I haven't said his name yet, um, his name is Eric Helms, Dr. Eric Helms, to be exact. Um, and again, he's, he's one of the most experienced people. He's probably had the biggest influence on me and my coaching practice. Um, and he has so many different books, courses, things like that. We're going to shout them all out at the end of the podcast. And I'm going to link them all in the show notes. But I mean, the muscle and strength pyramids, for example, are the Bibles of training and nutrition for coaches. Um, he has mass research review, which in my opinion is the the best quality, but also the easiest to understand and learn from research review that is on the market. It's the highest quality one for sure. Um, he also has the global nutrition mastermind, which he does with Dr. Joe, which is a, a monthly webinar series that they do really, really informative. Um, they have the 3DMJ vault. So the, the amount of education he's providing to coaches in the industry is just insane. So um, I'm not going to rant too much longer because we get into his story and, and why he did what he did. And then we're going to touch on a couple topics inside of coaching. And, and I think my goal with this podcast was not to just pick his brain because if you search Eric Helms on the iTunes podcast search engine, you are going to find countless episodes that deep dive into all things bodybuilding, periodization, macros, training, volume, intensity, 
uh, everything. I mean, this guy knows literally everything about everything. It seems like it's, it's honestly, I don't understand how he has so much space in his head. It's crazy. But point being is, is I wanted to take a different approach. I wanted to talk to him about his come up his story his like how he perceived his journey would be and how it actually turned out where he sees the industry going his coaching philosophy um and, and kind of take a different turn and then we finished with some periodization for hypertrophy because it was just one question i just needed to ask him uh, but i think you guys are really really going to enjoy this i take a lot of value out of his word and i use a lot of his education to improve our education and to improve our coaching philosophy so i've learned so much from this guy. You guys have probably heard me mention Eric Helms or the Muscle and Strength Pyramids a thousand times on the podcast. So I'm excited to finally get him on the show um, and bring him on. I don't know why I didn't ask him sooner, but um, I'm excited about this. You guys are going to love this episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please do me a huge favor. Um, as always, leave us a five-star rating and review. Um, but if you like the show as well, please do me a big favor and post a screenshot of this episode on your story so myself and Eric can see it and we can share it on our story. And thank you for listening. You can tag me at Cody.BoomBoom, and you can tag Eric at Helms3DMJ. That's H-E-L-M-S-3-D-M-J. Tag us. Share it on your story. We want to share it too. Thank you so much for listening. And without any more ranting, here is the one and only Dr. Eric Helms. All right, Dr. Eric Helms. I'm excited to have you on, man. This has been, uh, in my opinion, long overdue. I've probably – I'm going to hype you up here for a sec, so get ready. Um, Actually, in fact, I have – my computer on a stack of books that I do my interviews on in this corner and I can, I'm looking at the muscle and strength pyramids right now. Cause that's on my bookshelf. So I always stack them on top of that. Um, but see, point, they're so useful and beyond just things you can learn. You can so put useful. things on them too. And Check you know, it out now at muscle and strength pyramids.com. If you need you something to put your computer on, <laughs> I'll link that in the show notes. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I actually, I jumped on the hard copies as soon as they came out, even though I just finished volume two on the ebook, but I was like, I have to have this on my shelf. Like it's only right, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, but I've literally probably mentioned your name a thousand times in this podcast, man. You've been such a good, uh, influence and role model on my coaching career and the people of this podcast. Cause we've brought up your name so many times throughout not only my Q and A's and stuff like that, but conversations I've had with other people in the industry and that you're probably friends with that look to you as a, as a sort of mentor as well. So, um, just tons of respect for you, man. This is really cool for me because like I said, you've played a huge role on what I've done and, and that's kind of where I want to start is diving into your story. Uh, because I think you've had such an amazing role. I was telling Andrea this when we, we recorded with her. You've had such a big impact on so many people that I always wonder like, if you actually understand how many people are affected by the stuff that you've put out. And, and, and more importantly, like, did you expect that when you first got into all this? Did you think it would go to this, this level? Oof. So do I know to the, the extent to which I impact people? Um, Probably not. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I struggle with, with like, you know, sitting in that too, because then um, my brain immediately goes to, well, like, hey, don't get too big headed. And then what about the people you might have negatively impact? And I think about how I was early in my career. And um, I think many ways, for me at least, the, the place I'm trying to go and the person I'm trying to be and the standard I hold myself to is not just reflective of my values, but it's also informed by the things I feel like I didn't do well previously, if I'm honest with myself, you know? So, um, so there's that. And then, uh, so what was the second part of the question? I already forgot. 
<laughs> See, I'm not that impressive. <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you expected it to, to go this Oh, way. no. No, I did not expect it. And I think um, not that I, I didn't set myself up to be in this position, but I, I think it's very difficult. Yeah, it's a tough one. Like, I think I had actually, I'm like, like when, if I look back and if I could talk to myself, I would be like, Oh shit, the plan worked, you know, like my, my, my young self. Um, so yeah, I, I guess it's, it's this strange juxtaposition of even when you plan for something to go a certain way, it's still sort of unbelievable that, that when you get there, you do it. Um, and I think maybe that's reflective of not necessarily having like complete self-efficacy or, or self-faith, but enough to get the ball rolling and then just put my head down and focus on the process. Um, cause I mean, like if I think even, even when you expect to succeed in something, it wasn't like I finished my PhD and I was like, yep, knew that was going to happen. You know, <laughs> like, you know, I, I set forth to do it. It was incredibly challenging. And I was like, holy shit, you know, like I'm on the other side of it, you know? Um, and I think the same thing could be said with athletic endeavors, um, anniversaries, you know, like when, when I had my 10 year anniversary with my wife, I was like, man, we've really like, we've, we've built something together. Like we have that, that this is something worth remembering and having an anniversary about and not like, yeah, you know, we're both such good communicators and we do this relationship thing. Like we didn't just high five and like not celebrate. So I, I think it's a, there's, there's a difference between um, planning something, expecting to get there, or at least hoping you will and believing you can, um, but then like knowing what it'll be like, or, or you can't really predict the experience, I should say, the qualitative element, even if you have the steps to get to the, the vision of what you want to be. It's a lot of rambling there in that answer. So I don't know if that answered it, but no, that's my best shot. I think that's good. And I think uh, my follow-up question would be like, how had, like, was there ever a, a turning point where you started focusing more on the education side? Cause I, when I kind of, mm -hmm. I was talking to one of my buddies about this and I kind of look at the space as there's these different levels and there's the, the actual people doing research. And then there's like researchers slash interpreters. And then there's like interpreters slash coaches. And then there's just coaches. Um, and I was at the coach level and I believe I'm, I'm in the interpreter slash coach level. And then people like you are the interpreter slash researcher because you're doing it, but you're also delivering things like mass, which I highly recommend to people listening to this. Um, and that's kind of like how I see the, did you ever get to a point where you were at that coach level and you just decided like, I need to move up that ladder and start doing more. Cause I even remember, I think when I found you originally, you were doing, Q and A's with Matt Ogus outside of Chipotle. Like I you remember the, the only one I remember those videos. And, and that was the first time I heard anybody talk about some of the stuff that you were talking about in the way you were doing it. And I was just like, man, that's so much smarter than what I'm doing right now. <laughs> that makes so much sense. So, um, <laughs> but did you ever, uh, does that make sense? Did you ever kind of see yeah. like a, a path and it decide does, to make that shift? It does make sense. And the one thing I will challenge you on is that I don't think it's a ladder. Mm. Um, and I think it's important that people don't think um, that someone who is a, I would say overly well-read academic or researcher is the model to be a personal trainer. I, the last thing I want is people to think they need to be obsessively ridiculous and overthinking as I am to be a good personal trainer. Like, oh, well, one day, once I get 
my PhD, then I can successfully help people. Like, absolutely not, you know, um, nor is it necessary. I think the, there's a really good quote by, that is attributed to Einstein, um, that if you can't explain something simply, you're not truly an expert in it. And what that means is that to fully grasp the depth and the breadth of what falls in the realm of, of helping people in fitness requires nutrition, psychology, exercise science, experience, all those things, right? So yeah, I put in 16 years and I have advanced degrees and all that stuff. And I've, I've coached people at the highest level and I've taken myself to what could be reasonably assumed to be close to maybe what my potential is. And I've learned a ton from that. Um, but the, the output of that is sometimes very straightforward, logical things that you could understand and have maybe a light bulb moment, hopefully if I did my job right in a hour long podcast, you know? Um, and I think the, the value in that is so that hopefully all of this ridiculous time I've spent obsessing over things that, uh, that I'm obsessing over are, uh, giving people the specific tools they need to do a specific job. And I think some of the best personal trainers I know out there have not taken the academic route. So I almost see them in parallel, you know, like I truly believe that Jeff Berto and Brad of 3DMJ are better coaches than I am because they didn't spread themselves across, uh, the, because you put, put it as a ladder, I'd put it sideways, right? Mm -hmm. You can, you can really go deep into the, the coaching path. You can go really deep just on the researcher path and you can definitely find people often on Twitter, uh, just to, to, to play a stereotype out who <laughs> you can tell, like they understand the depths of academia, but the application of even translational research, sometimes, um, they're missing a few steps. They miss something that's, that's, that's practical or they're wholly uneducated in er other areas. Um, like people who are overly emphasizing certain, uh, factors that relate to the obesity epidemic. think that's the solution when it's multifactorial and they may neglect the psychology of the person or, uh, neglect something else, the, the social factors, et cetera, you know? So what I would challenge you on is that, um, I started as a trainer. I started as an athlete, let's be honest. And that really hasn't gone away. Like my central focus is still just being a meathead. Um, became a trainer uh, and then found that in my learning to be a better athlete and a better trainer of others, I showed an aptitude for this whole research thing. And there was the, the example, like Dr. Joe was a really good um, example for me. Other folks like Lane Norton's and the other, the other folks who are leading in the bodybuilding community with a very research heavy emphasis. And I thought, oh, that'd be cool. And then I showed an aptitude for it. It built my self-efficacy and I kept pursuing it. And then at some point to answer your original question, at what point did I decide I wanted to go, I would say laterally shift it to something a little more focused on the science communicator side or researcher uh, was in 2011. 2011, I was cutting my teeth at uh, Bryan University, uh, formerly Bryan College, which is a private uh, university that has very technical specific uh, associate's degrees. They're called applied associate's degree programs. They had one for like uh, court reporters, massage therapists, um, something else that I can't remember, and then also personal trainers. Um, so I was teaching in the personal trainer program. And that was really where I got stretched and learned my capabilities and got a lot of positive feedback. Um, you know, the, the, the old adage, the cliche that there's no better way to learn something by teaching it is, is very true. 
Um, and when I found that, man, I really seem to get this whole critical thinking communication thing down, let me see how far I can take this. You know, I'm, I'm the person people ask questions on, on the forums. I'm the, the, the guy in the gym who can't get his workout done because everyone comes and asking questions in the middle of it and I have to go train somewhere else or just have headphones going into my pocket that are not connected to an iPod just to maybe create one more barrier so I can do my training. Um, and I'm, I'm becoming like the chief science officer of 3DMJ. You know, this is where my interests lie. Um, and maybe I can help more people by going this route. Because as a trainer, um, you can help as many people as on your roster. Um, as a science communicator or as an author or someone who puts out information, if you do it right, uh, you can help a, a larger number of people. Maybe not to the same depth, not to say that it's, it's better, uh, but I felt that I could make the largest positive impact by going that route. Um, but I was also aware once Instagram started popping off and Facebook that if you don't know what you're doing and you don't do it right and you position yourself as a leader and you get a large following, you can hurt far more people than if you're a personal trainer because a shitty personal trainer can only hurt like one person an hour. You know, the rate of, of being a crappy human is much lower. Um, and you also see the, the, like if you hurt someone, they're hurt, they're in front of you, you messed up. You know, if, if your clients aren't getting results, you see that they come back, they don't sign up, you know? So personal training often self-corrects because that person is right there with you. But if you're just putting shit out into the ether on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook to thousands, and it's controversial enough for you to get followers. So you think you're someone who's worth listening to. So it's a very dangerous space. So I think if someone does want to go the route of science communicator, they really do need to do their homework. I think they need, um, breadth and depth. They like, if you want to do what Eric Helms is doing, then yeah, I might be a good model for your career path. If you want to try to communicate to a large number of people and expand your platform to ostensibly uh, be, be a teacher, um, then man, you really, you really, I think you do need to put in the, the, those hours and that time. But if you want to be a really good personal trainer, you should have not taken the forks I took. You should have stayed as a, a personal trainer. If you like doing it in person or stayed as an online coach, because since about 2014, I have been had a diminishing roster. And while my experience level is, it's not shrinking, it's, it's growing very small. I had like three to four clients at any time. Um, but I used to have 40, you know, and I carried a roster of 40 for years. And I used to do a Skype call with my client, with, with, with clients or people who just did a one-off Skype call with me, you know, three to five times a week for years. And then before that, I was a full-time personal trainer. Uh, or a part-time personal trainer while teaching personal trainers. So there was a time when my skill set was, was completely about being a trainer uh, and training theory. And then it morphed towards being an academic and a researcher uh, in the research area of translation, tra of tra uh, tra translatory research or applied research, taking research to practice. So my career path is, is, is shifted a little bit. I wouldn't call them forks, but like you know, slightly parallel roads, but they are definitely, I don't want to position them as a ladder where a trainer starts at the bottom and then the top is, is the person who, who's in PubMed um, because you can do them completely independently. Um, and there may be value depending on what you're best at, what you enjoy and what really gets you passionate and, and, uh, and happy really um, to do more good work in staying in, in one of those various lanes that I spent some time in. I love that answer. I, I like that you took that and made it more lateral because I agree. I think that makes more sense. And 
it's a, it's a career path and a choice. It's not that you have to choose one or the other. It's just what fits you best. Now with, I, I have a feeling I know what some of your answer is going to be and, and feel free to plug as much of your stuff as you need to, because I'm subscribed to quite a few of them, but you, and you have a lot of these out there, but what can trainers or coaches, people on, on that right side or left side or whatever side do to start kind of bridging the gap? Because I think, you know, mm. evidence-based is becoming more and more popular and I think it is important. Um, but how do they do that the right way and how do they do that intelligently and, and understand how to actually apply that research? Yeah, I think it's, it's really important that we don't see the current quote unquote evidence-based communities as new revolution, this new thing in fitness where finally we're paying attention to science. Um, that's why I've become a student of history, uh, like amateurly on my side. Like I'm reading a book, uh, right now called muscle town USA. And it's about, uh, Bob Hoffman who started the York gang in like the, the, the twenties we're talking like John Grimmick and the very first, uh, once weightlifting became an Olympic sport, the very first teams that went there. And then he was the dominant figure in strength and bodybuilding up until the early eighties. Uh, and then he got challenged by Weeder. So when the Weeder brothers challenged him back in the late 40s, 50s, and 60s, one of the angles they took was to say that Bob Hoffman was not science-based, and they were. And they had a few people with letters after their name write articles for them. Uh, they, would, they would say that they weren't scientific over at York Gang. They're old school. It was bro science, basically, but different language. Uh, and they even promoted the things they'd figured out in the, uh, the, the Weeder Research and Development Lab, which was actually a broom closet with that on the door in their office. So as long as there has been science in fitness, there has also been science as marketing. And I think in the modern era, we like to position those two against each other. Like, oh, you're, you're, you're doing this for the right reasons. You're true blue. You have integrity and you are... You're, 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 you're just a scientist. You're here for the, the love of the game and, and the pursuit of knowledge, or you're this bro scientist who relies on evil anecdotes and you just want to sell people stuff. And I think that is a, a really, that, that's about as sophisticated as looking at morality through the lens of GI Joe, like bad people are Cobra and good people are GI Joe and no one ever dies in war. They just parachute out of like, that's not the way the world is. Um, there is as much, um, misuse of science and science is marketing as there is good science out there. And there is probably even more uh, science that is simply poorly understood and applied in the wrong way. So what I'm getting at is that for someone to use science, it's not just about sharing knowledge. There was a time point when the internet was a little less of a just man, absolute smorgasbord buffet of plat social media platforms, resources, websites, um, where there was only a few sources of information where simply sharing knowledge was probably more useful, right? Um, simply posting things uh, and challenging convention. But now there are, I mean, there, there's a, a whole competitive market of research reviews. There are a ton of people like me who are academics who also are also uh, science communicators, where previously they kind of shared two different spaces. You know, I can think of some of the folks who, who I came up as, they're, they're not actual researchers. You know, they, they never set foot in a lab. They're just people with advanced degrees, um, but probably not research-based degrees, who've read a lot, maybe did a thesis, and who are really good at, at reading research and, and telling it to people. And I think that's very valuable. Um, but 
nowadays, that exists everywhere. You can find science-based information all over the place. And now we're actually at the point where people are like, oh, science seems to conflict. So yes, I have the resources to tell people what they need to know. Here is the knowledge. You've got your computer sitting on two big tombs of them, right? You've got the tomes of Eric Helms' collective knowledge in the second edition, Muscle and Strength Pyramids, at least up till 2019, right? Um, the, the, the logical principles that I can create from the knowledge I've accrued over the 15 years at the time I wrote those are in those books for the most part as they apply to bodybuilding and powerlifting. Um, and then we've also done the whole research for you things. So mass, monthly applications and strength sport. Now you can stay up to date. We curate what we think is most relevant and we, we translate it into practice. And we talk about all the caveats because we happen to be practitioners and researchers who've done research and we know what it's like to be in the lab. What are the statistical pitfalls, methodological pitfalls? Um, and that's awesome. And you don't need to subscribe to mass. There's, there's weightology out there. There's, um, there's other fantastic books. You know, you get Brad Schoenfeld's book on hypertrophy. There's a lot of other people doing what I do. So we're not short on information. So I don't spend 90% of my time uh, just putting out, hey, let's see what the research says to do next time you step in the gym or the kitchen. I spend a lot of time now talking philosophy, talking the way to use research, how to identify people who are um, largely rationally skeptic, you know, because no one's perfect. We all have biases. We all get triggered. We all have prior beliefs that maybe we're not that open to changing, uh, even if we, we put on a, a, a good face of being the pure scientist. So helping people be better purveyors of what's out there. Because I think right now there is so much information. There are so many people. There are so many infographics or so many research reviews. Um, you're not going to be short on scientific information, but you will struggle to understand what it means, how to use it, how to identify the, the better than worse science communicators, uh, and how to um, juxtaposition all of the the, the difference between how to learn and information, which are kind of like if you're playing like a, a role-playing game online, there's like, you can collect stuff or you can build your stats. Now I like to try to build people's stats, you know, so that their, their passive skills uh, allow them to better sift through all this stuff. Cause I can't tell you how often I run into the questions on an Instagram, for example, where it's clear they've read every, they've read all this stuff about like volume, uh, intensity, uh, rates of weight gain, all these facts, you know, um, but they really are totally crippled when it comes to thinking about what they mean, why, how to apply them. Uh, and, and they're largely just confused and wasting their time. But if you can help someone understand uh, how to be logical, how to discern hyperbole from something that's probably a little more probabilistic in nature and, and what the way, how should science be done? What's the underlying philosophy of empiricism? Like, um, if someone is, is using salesy, really marketing style tactics, but talking about science that should, you know, like set off an alarm for most people, you know, if the result of someone sharing science is you getting out your checkbook every single time, uh, that, that person may not be using science in a, uh, in its truest form. So anyway, I spent a lot of time like if you were to go to the 3DMJ blog and just click on Eric Helms author, um, I'd say maybe 40% of it is like science he should. And the other 60% is how to think, you know, and coaching perspectives and career and philosophy because science is built on philosophy. 
right? Uh, your, your methodology, your ontology, your way of, of thinking, learning, and understanding uh, what, what knowledge is and how to accru accrue more of it and how to discern uh, what is quote unquote true or not, that is, is lying underneath all of the nuggets and facts that you put on top of it. And it's how you can evaluate facts as to whether they should be uh, taken seriously to what degree, how often, and how they could be applied. So if that foundation sucks, you're just piling a whole bunch of garbage on top uh, and, and then you will get totally lost in the sewage. I, I know you said you don't have to go by mass, but I think, I think truly investing in some of that stuff is really important for a lot of trainers because I'll be the first one to admit um, I've, I've done my fair share of searching PubMed and things. It's, it's just not the same because no matter how long I've been doing this, it's, extremely difficult to truly extract the information from a study uh, and articulate the way you guys do. So we recently just brought on um, Brandon Roberts as a, our CSO. And Beautiful. this is one question. Brilliant, I man. He's really smart. So like going over things with him, it, it's not that like it's completely opposite of what I was thinking, but it's like, ah, okay, that makes mm -hmm. more sense. And that applies better. And he can help our coaches understand how to apply that so much better. Um, and, and one of the crazy things that I actually just, I was talking to him yesterday, um, cause he's going to do like a, he was writing a blog for the website, uh, on a couple different researches. And he was like, Hey, can you pick one out of this April list of studies that we're reviewing? And I'm like, that's just April. And it's just like <laughs> hundreds of studies. And, uh, and that's another one of the things is like, you guys have to go through so many to figure out what's actually even worth trying to interpret it for people, which is so hard in it of itself. Yeah, that, that, that's a multi-step process. And it's one, um, so the way it originally formed was that uh, one of us had to take on the duty of going through all of the journals uh, for mass and then looking through all the titles and, and selecting them. And then when you see a title that could apply or not looking at the abstract, you know, um, and this started as, you know, Greg put his hand up and he's like, I'll do this. I also want to create a list for Stronger by Science. And it got to the point where we were like, all right, there's probably there's hundreds of journals and there's more than a thousand articles that are relevant to resistance training that come out every month. Um, so this, this curated list got to the point where it was unwieldy. So now actually two of my PhD students created for us and it's a way for the week we can, we can get them some money. Cause I can tell you when you're a PhD student, money is a thing you don't have. So the, uh, so this is a great opportunity to get them more exposed to literature. It's, like very close to what they're already doing for their PhD. Um, and it saves us a little time just because how time consuming it is. So when, when I go through that Excel document that's put together by two PhD students for who go over all these journal, journal articles and publications and put it there, we're able to pull out eight, uh, the best eight. And sometimes it's slim picking. We're very rarely like, Oh, there's so many I can choose from. There are sometimes, but, um, just the act of sifting through that and then looking at the methods in the abstract and going, oh, that, that title is cool, but they kind of screwed the pooch on the way they set this up. It doesn't tell us anything, uh, you know, or, or uh, I might review this one purely because I can show people how you can do it wrong and make the wrong conclusion, you know? So um, it's a huge process. And like you said, you can go on PubMed and I actually encourage people to do so and, and try to connect the dots on your own. Um, but, the seeing someone who has the skill set and has been connecting those dots and has actually created dots 
connecting, making those connections is a very instructive process. And it, I think while like the, the marketing pitch for mass is that we're going to save you time. Uh, we're going to tell you what to do. You can stay on the cutting edge. I think probably the, what I think is the most valuable part of mass, which isn't very marketable is, Hey, you can learn by watching how we do it, how to better uh, understand what to take from this information. And, and we also give people options. Like you can just read the key take point takeaways and then listen to our audio roundtables, And you could probably skip most of that. But if the people who are reading the interpretation uh, that are almost always over a thousand words for each article, they're getting to see how we reasoned through it. We often refer to the peer review process where you know, Eric Trexler, myself, Greg, and Mike are all trying to figure something out together and eventually getting to consensus and all the other research that came before this piece or that conflicts with this piece or agrees with this piece or that gives you the little piece of the puzzle that's missing from this study. I think that is really, really valuable because it helps you learn critical thinking and it helps you see how we're doing what we're doing rather than just going, right, I have the answers. Like this is, this is I'm up to date with, with April 2020's knowledge. That's there too. And that is definitely the better marketing pitch if we're trying to get people to subscribe. Um, but it's actually not the, the biggest benefit in my opinion. So, you know, you're, you're talking about all the things one needs to do as a trainer. Like there, you have to stay up on your continuing education. You have to learn more and more about people to become a better communicator. Um, you have to learn to be empathetic. You know, you have to really step outside of your own shoes. I think that's one of the best uh, things that comes from the profession is you get to meet a lot of people who think very differently than you. And I think most personal trainers get into personal training because they love training. They love exercise. They love fitness. And they end up being initially really bad at their job because they're working with a whole bunch of people who do not feel that way at all. And they think their clients are the weird one. And they start to realize I'm the weird one. And until I start to acknowledge that and stop trying to teach people how to be me, I will be a bad trainer because you're, you're, you're the person, the solutions that work for you are inherently non-useful to the rest of society. You're the person who, whether it was an obesity epidemic or not, whether there was recommendations of here's the food pyramid and here's how much exercise to get, like you're doing five times that already for fun. You're, you're playing video games as going to the gym, you know? So that that's those things all need to be going on as a personal trainer. And then you find out, Oh shit. And I have to stay up with all this research or I'm going to get yelled at by some PubMed ninja when I post on my Instagram page. Like, Oh, so I think it's very normal now that people like Brendan Roberts or myself find roles uh, to, to sift through all this information that's out there. And when I look at all the things I do, I try to have the things I do fit into kind of the flow chart of if I'm a trainer, and I want to be good at my job, or if I'm an athlete, I want to be good at my job, or if I'm someone who does want to become a science communicator and I want to be good at my job, how can I provide the resources for them to be empowered to get to that point? So for the, the athlete or the coach, I, I say, this, you know, my, my books are, are, are written for you. They, they give you everything you need. They get the foundation of knowledge. They talk about progression. They answer all the questions. They address the things that the, that the, the powerlifting and bodybuilding community believes, thinks about, and matters, and then integrates the research with it. If you're a trainer, um, this is how you stay abreast of all of the research that's coming out. Or if you're a, a coach, you know, so like 
And then I think, all right, well, what if someone wants to learn how to coach people? Well, that's my course with the PTC Collective. You know, okay, well, what if someone uh, wants to stay up to date with changes in the industry? Okay, that's Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind that I do with Dr. Joe Klimziski. So I have all of these things that in my mind fit into the puzzle of how do I help athletes, practitioners, and science communicators in my community get to where they want to be? Because I have been each one of them. So I can think of what would have been nice. What would have fast tracked me so I wasn't, you know, stumbling through walls and tripping to get here? Because none of this shit existed you know, in 2004 or five, when I first started becoming a personal trainer uh, or 2009, when I first started um, uh, 3D mustering, there were, it's all, it was all in its infancy at best. So I, I kind of look at it from that perspective, like how do I let the ladder down for, for people who are doing any of the things I've done? Cause that's what I, my expertise is beyond that. I don't know anything. I can barely ride a bike. So <laughs> You're doing it, man. And, and I, I think it was cool that you mentioned the interpretation part, because I, I'll be honest, like when I first got mass, my first thought was like, oh, this is really cool. They have the key takeaways right away, applications, like what they would do different, simple. Mm-hmm. But I actually enjoy the interpretation the most because it's, it's basically you guys kind of like, it, it allows me to get in your head and see how you go through it and really understand it yourself and apply it yourself. So I encourage people to actually go through the whole thing as well. Um, and then one thing I will going back to the, one of the first things I said to you is like the influence you've had on people. There's a lot of people out there that have to be just like me. I'm a part of the global nutrition mastermind. I'm part of mass. I have your eBooks. Um, I have a bunch of stuff from the 3d MJ vault. So you're, you're definitely playing this role where you have all these different avenues because it's almost as if when somebody like myself has a question, Eric Helms has something to do with <laughs> the answer in some place, one or another, um, which is really cool, man. It, it, it's something you should be super proud of because um, it, it's, it's, it's been really cool. I mean, obviously you don't know me, but it's been cool to watch it because like I said, I've been watching YouTube for so long to see that Avenue and to see you keep integrity through the whole thing has been really inspiring. Um, and it's a lot of people. So, um, but I do have a follow-up question to what you were saying as well. Um, and that's kind of where you, th- it's multifaceted, like where you think the industry is going and if mm. that's where you want it to go compared to what you thought. And one of the things that made me think of this is you were kind of name dropping some people and it's, it's actually cool because I started digging into Greg Knuckles stuff after seeing you guys do something years ago. And then that got me on to Eric Trexler. Eric Trexler does all my training and nutrition. So he's like my coach and he introduced me to Brandon Roberts and Brandon joined the team. So like, it's been really cool to do that. And, and for me, I have this hope that other companies will do similar things like, hey, we need somebody to just quality control education and science in our company. We need somebody to watch this part of the company. We need somebody to focus on just coaching and the interns and stuff like that. Um, but it's rare. So, so my question for mm-hmm. you is just kind of getting in your head, like where do you see the industry going? And is that parallel to what you actually want? Yeah, the industry is is not a monolith by any means. You know, like if you hang out in like the yoga community, a whole different world. Mm-hmm. You know, um, CrossFit community, it's got a little bit of everything, but it's on it's on it's on unique animal. You know, um, like the the evidence based community has is very much been a child of the the cults of personality that kind of started it. You know, um, like if you think about the the, the progenitors, like in the late nineties, early two thousands, the people who were just all about science, um, for one, they weren't scientists. So that, that, that's kind of a, a new thing now that the people who are 
leaders in the evidence-based community are scientists and uh, practitioners and communicators. Um, and they're coming, coming more to the forefront. And I think that's because um, there are less barriers to entry for, for communication, you know? So like if it was just writing blog before, you know, like, like that's something that most researchers just weren't doing. So when I first got into it, it was, it was cool, but the culture was very much, I'm going to use science to be the coolest guy in the chat room and I'm going to dunk on you, you know? Um, and there was almost this culture of it's cool to be an asshole so long as you're right and smart. And I came up in that and I accepted so much of it. And many of the people who were the leaders at the time who are less leaders today than they were because they, if, if you're an asshole, you're missing a key piece of what health and fitness is about. You know, it's not just like, Oh, it's, I like people who are nice and I don't like to be all that. Like, it's not just like, it's not just a personal preference or, or being, you know, hug, huggy and squeezy. It's like, if, if you're an asshole to everyone around you, it, it means you're not good at empathy. You know, your health and fitness is, is quite literally about helping people help themselves and understanding people from diverse backgrounds and becoming the best version of yourself. Like there's an inherent altruistic community aspect. Um, and everything points towards whether it's athletic coaching, gen pop, uh, positive psychology, whatever. It's all about this client-led approach, you know, instead of this authoritarian top-down thing. And the, the model that essentially the evidence-based community came from was basically, I'm a guru, but instead of you just, you know, buying into whatever, like the, the Poliquin principles or whatever thing I put forth as the example of, you cannot question this, it's basically whose science is the best, you know, which is good. It's, it's much better than, than just the, the pure kind of guruism. Um, it's like, it's a cult of personality. I'm the man, but I'm the man because I'm the most empirical. So it has this kind of built-in safety mechanism that at the very least, it means we have the best information. But is having the best information the most important thing? Maybe, maybe not. I'm going to go ahead and just say no. Um, if what we're trying to do is help people, uh, the elements of communication, the elements of... Uh, empathy, the elements of all of those things, the, the soft skills of of, uh, of working with humans, that is actually the cornerstone and cornerstone in my opinion. And that was, I think, wholly missing for for a long time. Uh, and we were willing to look the other way with people who were really just not good humans. Like just, and then I, I'm just, I, I sound a little bitter because I almost am mad at myself that I came up in an era and I was like, this is cool. I want to be one of those guys. I want to have all the PubMed answers. Like I want to be the badass uh, in, in, in the smart guys room. And don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of benefits from that. Cutting my chops into the you know, bodybuilding.com forums and being able to confidently know that the hundred people who I might be dropping a, uh, a challenge to, you know, like I'm going to go ahead and talk to a bunch of high level bodybuilders who have done it a certain way, got success and tell them this is unnecessarily restrictive. And then everything they have to say to me, I know I can counter and I may even actually convince a few of them and all the people who are looking onward and go, wow, I, I never thought of it that way, you know? So that battleground, if you will, the gladiatorial combat that occurred in the mid 2000s 
uh, about if it fits your macros or training to failure or whatever, training frequency, anything you can think of that is um, changed because of the evidence-based influence, that's, that's great. And I, I do appreciate the, uh, the influences that, that those people had. But I think um, what also came of that was, was really just being a bully, you know? And I think a lot of, uh, there's blowback to that. You know, there, there became an anti-science community from a bunch of people who were assholes with science, in my opinion. Um, you know, and, and I think a lot of the times all that did was give sciencey information to science interested folks so we could all get together and feel superior and dunk on people who were, who were quote unquote dumb, you know, and that's, uh, that's a really poor model for getting the industry to, to your original question. I know it sounds like I'm just going off on a, on a tangent. I'm not the, 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 the point should be of the evidence-based community to elevate the industry, right? To bring it into safer, better, more effective practices that lead to better happiness, performance, et cetera, and people reaching their goals and being able to have more agency and do what they want. However, if we circle the wagons and talk about how we're awesome and people who don't know this stuff are dumb and treat everyone who has the wrong information like they're either a charlatan, snake oil salesman, or just an idiot, the circle doesn't expand. The industry doesn't get elevated. It just creates an island. And I think for a long time, the evidence-based community was isolated. And it was just like, oh, those guys over there, they're just, they're really just jerks who like to be right. And, you know, they're not making a lot of gains like the, the lab coats, you know, you talk about them like that. Um, so then when we started, so the changes that I have liked is that I feel that there are more connections with the quote-unquote evidence-based community in the broader fitness sector now. Um, you will see more people using science as a marketing strategy now, for better or for worse, but the point is is that they will reach out to, to us and, and maybe get a different perspective on how science should be used, what it means. I do think many people come by uh, these harmful views and harmful information. Honestly, they're not trying to hurt people. They just don't know better. So if we treat them as though they would do better if they knew better. Now we create bridges and the evidence-based community expands and we get to reach out into the whole fitness community and uplift it rather than just isolating ourselves because we're jerks. So I think in that way, I have definitely seen the evidence-based community get better. Um, and I, in some ways, don't look outward outside of that community too much. I just try to make myself very approachable. I try to um, do the right thing, treat people with respect uh, and humility, and, and hopefully know that it'll just keep expanding. Because if I do look outwards into the farthest reaches of the fitness community, it can be very bleak because we are still a very small portion of it. Like I said, the industry is not a monolith. So my career has advanced quite far. I think I have a pretty large influence, but that influence is in, is in, I'm not gonna say an echo chamber, but I'm gonna say in a pretty tight-knit community. And the opportunities I get to actually reach outward and make a big, a big impact outside of our community is not that much. Um, I do think it expands and I do really appreciate um, all the things you said. And, that, and, and it's amazing to hear that there are, are people who've had your experience to know that like, I've had a, an element of, of influence on you in a lot of ways. Um, and 
I think because I've been willing to do things like be on Matt Ogus's channel, you know, or go on podcasts that normally are not in the same, you know, sector that I'm in, like the brute strength podcast, you know, all of a sudden a bunch of CrossFitters knew who I was out of nowhere. Um, or that I'll sit down and talk with people, um, in, in, you know, enhanced and the natural bodybuilding world and things like that. It, it, it takes those little isolated communities, um, and, and expands them to other places. And that's kind of the whole inception of why Omar Isaf and I started Iron Culture is we realized just, yeah, the internet gives you access to everything, but damn it, if it doesn't also create echo chambers. So how can we start to bridge those gaps and expose people to different ways of thinking and different experiences and different communities and cultures? And uh, so that's, that's a hard thing to do. And I think that is my, that's kind of where I've been at now at this stage is I've, I've moved into a position of influence and leadership, which I don't take for granted. Uh, I, I certainly don't think I'm, I'm entitled to it, nor do I sit in a position of arrogance from being there. But I do feel fortunate that I can uh, hopefully positively influence our little sector. But now I'm starting to look out and go, okay, well, how do I get a little bit of that everywhere? And that, that's kind of uh, the next step for me. I don't know how successful I can be, um, but that is where I would like to see the industry go uh, moving forward is to make a broader sector of people in fitness aware of um, how to use you know, empiricism, how to be informed uh, by research and, and the appropriate philosophy underlying it and the difference between someone who's a self-interested guru and someone who's actually trying to help others, science or not, which I think is, is quite important because you can be, and I think many people who I came up with were self-interested gurus who simply used empiricism. Um, they're more interested in being the smartest guy in the room than they were in helping other people. And I think that that has changed in our community um, for the most part. And that's really good to see it, but I want that to get outside of our community now. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I can think of, I'm obviously not going to put names out, but I can think of people who fit that description that kind of stuck in that pattern. And it, and being a consumer and a coach myself, it just, it doesn't help. And, and it's mm -hmm. not appealing to me to get educated by sources like that. And I think that as more people are doing what you guys are doing and really interpreting the science in a good way, more and more coaches in my position are finding it. And then that's relaying even to gen pop because we work with a lot of gen pop clients and we're using it for them now. And then now they're mm -hmm. becoming familiar with the hierarchy of importance and all these different things that you've created over the years. Um, so I, I think that it is spreading in that way um, and it's trickling down slowly because I, I remember a time and, and nothing against T nation at the time. I loved it. And it got me yep. into fitness quite a bit. Same, but there was stuff that I would read on there that was like written in stone science, quote unquote. And I was like, God, that makes so much sense. That's what I got to do. And then when I found people like you, you start learning like, Oh wait, no, that that's actually not backed up by science. Really. not at all. It's, it's, they're selling a biotest supplement or something like that, yeah. or it's just a bro science tactic that somebody used in the gym. Um, but I think it's good because I think more and more things like you, what, what you guys are doing are it's, it's trickling down, not the ladder, but that lateral, uh, parallel it's trickling so, sideways yeah yeah it's, like, uh, it's, irrig it's irrigation yeah <laughs> so, um but i love it and i and uh one so i, I want to ask you one actual training question before i let you go because it. i can't not and, and it was funny when i was getting ready to do this podcast was like you might be the hardest person 
to interview because it's so hard to decide what I want to ask you or talk about. <laughs> you know, so many different things. Like you're not just in one area. Like uh, I've, I've heard people ask you questions on podcasts and you can cite research and stuff. And I'm like, Fuck, I didn't even think he was going into that path of things, but it's, <laughs> so it's really cool. But um, the question actually came up because yesterday I was listening to Iron Culture um, and you guys had Mike Zordos on really good episode on periodization. Yeah. Um, and you guys were talking about periodization for hypertrophy. Um, and I really just want to get uh, your take on it in general. When, when he was talking, I thought of a thought I had in the past, which was, well, if linear periodization is really simple and works well to build strength, then reverse linear will work well to accumulate volume and build muscle. But when you look at research from what I could tell, it doesn't really show that. So my question is kind of twofold, like periodization in general, but does that research really justify what we're seeing? Like, do you think there is any value in that? Man, it's, it's, uh, the problem with, with this area is that the area doesn't exist, you know, like, so, so here's what we've got. We've got a systematic review and a meta-analysis that took all the studies where they measured hypertrophy and used periodization models and made comparisons. Now, I could take every study on competitive swimming where they measured body composition changes and do a meta-analysis and say, hey, is, is long-distance swimming or, or short-distance swimming better for hypertrophy? it would be less useful, but it would be similarly useful to these meta-analyses, right? Because these aren't studies, almost none of the studies were designed principally by the, by the researchers going, what's, what's the program that's gonna put the most muscle on our participants? And then we'll start to make comparisons. The majority of them are resistance training, which we know causes hypertrophy, even if you're training for strength or power or other things. Um, and then let's see which of them resulted in hypertrophy. So it's almost like, side effect like which one has the best hypertrophy side effect and, and unsurprisingly undulating periodization block periodization linear periodization reverse linear none, none of it seemed to really pan out um and then as as far as so the, basically the conclusion was that periodization doesn't seem better than 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 not being periodized uh for, for hypertrophy so long as there's progressive overload uh and that different periodization models don't seem to be any different for, for hypertrophy uh, and then the, the, I, I'm aware of one study on reverse linear periodization. There may be more. I think it's by Prestes, uh, 2009. And they basically compared uh, a standard linear program, but the number of sets were the same in both groups. It was just one dropped reps and then one, and one increased reps over time. So the, the tonnage went up because if you do a set of 10 versus a set of five, even though the percentage one RM is higher than the set of five, the total tonnage will be higher if you do, you know, 10 sets with, sorry, 10 reps of 75% versus, you know, five reps with 85%. If you just do the math right there, one's 750 and the other one is 425 or something like that. So, um, so yeah, it, it's much easier to accumulate tonnage with high reps. And the outcomes in that one actually lean towards the linear group. Um, but I don't know how well the nutritional controls were. It's one study. Um, and from what we understand now, it's probably more about like how many sets do you do of a sufficient difficulty of a sufficient length? You know, like the general recommendation, like the way I, I changed the second edition of the pyramids for volume recommendations was, hey, how many sets do you have that are at least over like 30 to 40% of 1RM where you're at least getting reasonably close to failure, like a zero to five RIR, and that is a rough proxy for your hypertrophy sets, you know? 
but that is something that's emerged from the research as our current understanding in the uh, volume and intensity relationships with hypertrophy. But there's not been many studies that have actually uh, leveraged that, tested that hypothesis, put it into play. So we don't know anything about periodization for hypertrophy. You know, for example, um, I, I actually, I'm working on, and we have it in review, uh, a letter to the editor that's a critique of, of some of the, uh, uh, the things put forth in another article on like mesocyclic progression. So for example, the same thing you, see, you, you thought about, oh, well, the volume is, is one of the uh, strong relationships that we see with hypertrophy. Maybe we should be periodizing volume, you know? And I think that is true, but then the question is the devil's really becomes in the details. So we're almost at like the point in the 80s where people started debating different approaches to strength. Like it started with, you know, Matt Bayev in the 60s, like, oh, we need to have these linear blocks to peak performance here. And we know that, you know, power seems to be uh, a little better if you have a strength base. Okay, cool. So we need to build strength to peak power. All right, well, if we want to be strong, a big component of that is cross-sectional area. So maybe I set up a training plan where we do hypertrophy. Well, if I want to get really big, I have to do a fair amount of volume. I've got to be acclimated to that volume. So, okay, we'll do some muscular endurance and some aerobic base work and get just you know general work capacity, then we'll do hypertrophy, and then we'll do strength, and then we'll do power and peak. And then people went, oh, hold on, like if I spend three months doing only one of those, I lose some of the previous adaptations. So maybe we can have like an undulating approach. Or maybe I can take a block approach and just kind of take that system, but then truncate it over 12 weeks so you don't have enough time to lose anything. And okay, well maybe I can actually have a block system, but have some days where I do higher or low reps, so I can have like an undulating block system with an overall linear, linear pattern. And now you basically got the way most people train for powerlifting right now. You know, they'll go through a six week period where they're primarily training with moderate intensities, moderate reps, but they've got some, like they got the single at eight, you know, that's Mike Tushier inspired. And then they, that becomes the more dominant way that they're training as they peak for a competition, they taper and they go. But that is actually the culmination of 30 years of people arguing about periodization for strength, right? Um, so for hypertrophy right now, we're, we're at a very early stage I think the first time I heard anyone talk about, you know, periodization for hypertrophy was, was Fred Hatfield in the 80s or 90s. Uh, and he was discussing the concepts of training, you know, maybe theoretically uh, in different rep ranges to get uh, different uh, fiber types to grow. So you get a net better growth effect. And there's always been this kind of speculation without a whole lot of research behind it. And we're finally starting to get research on it um, that, that maybe we need a spectrum of rep ranges because there's many different paths to hypertrophy. Because a lot of shit works for getting getting grown. You know, you just have to train hard and do a sufficient volume. Um, and if you train really, really hard and pass failure, you don't need quite as much volume and you can't train as frequently. So that's why, you know, Dorian Yates is huge. And so is, so, so is Jay Cutler and anabolic steroids help, but you see the same thing in the natural ranks, just maybe less extreme. So, uh, we don't know a whole lot about periodization for hypertrophy. We know that many of the principles are, are appropriate fatigue management. Um, distribution and allocation of, of failure and volume on different days so that you can get the net best effect out of it. Um, tracking progress, uh, tracking the, uh, looking at progressive overload, I think in a different way. Uh, something that I think is really important is using your gains and strength. And I don't mean one RM, that could be like your six RM row, you know, going up as a way of assessing whether or not sufficient overload was produced and only changing things then. I think one of the mistakes that has come out of our understanding that volume is important for hypertrophy is to think that, okay, because volume is important, volume therefore must go up. And because we use microcycles, volume must go up every week. 
Like I can't tell you how often I'm dealing with people who think, well, well last week I did X amount of tonnage or X number of sets. This week it's got to go up, right? And I'm like, dude, I put on five pounds of muscle in eight years. Do you think this week is the week I need to see like progressive overload? Like what you, <laughs> what's so special about April 10th? You know, like I don't, I think, um, understanding the time course and taking a more reactive approach inherently individualizes it. Like, I don't think everyone responds to 10 sets. Some people need 20, some people only need five, and some people will be best at five, 10, and 20. And in fact, we've got a lot more research now coming out on uh, individualization. You can have a big different spectrum of how well the people respond to different volume levels. Um, it's probably related to their you know, ribosome, ribosomes and, and their capacity to produce them. And then we're finding all these different individual characteristics. And we speculate, well, maybe it's fiber type. Probably has a small role, but that's not related to specifically to the volume. That may be the time course of recovery. So uh, maybe we do different frequencies if you have different muscle fiber type dominance. And your capacity to, to develop ribosomes dictates your, your volume. But how do we test all that? We don't. So you probably want to take a more reactive, conservative approach uh, and train hard within the current certain constraints. And when you don't progress anymore, meaning you don't see that six RM cable row go up, then you add volume. So that will look like periodization. Um, but much like periodization and strength is becoming more and more of an emergent, uh, process from these principles, uh, things like John Kiley have uh, promoted in the research and things like Mike Tushier have done in practice highly successfully with athletes in both team sports and the top levels of powerlifting, I think we'll, we, we are seeing the same thing in bodybuilding. There's already a lot of people who uh, are successful in bodybuilding and they have some constraints that they set up so they can have a reactive approach to whether or not it's working. Because in the end, that's what matters. So my fear is that if we really start leveraging periodization in the same way it was leveraged in the 80s and the 90s, and we create these voices of here's the way it must be done, and here's the way it should be done, and here's your specific volume for your chest that you got to do, and it should increase. Um, I think that's problematic because we had to do 10 years of work to kind of break that down uh, in in the periodization literature for strength. So um, I'm hoping that we can what we can borrow from the periodization literature for strength is where we've gotten to that it should be a more emergent, individualized, uh, based on principles and not these rigid rules and systems and people battling it out based on what their beliefs are. I love that. I think uh, I, I heard not too long ago, I, I want to say one of my friends, Chris Barricat, he, he is in Florida and he's in the lab and stuff. And he was mentioning, Break I believe he's doing something in this individualized volume research, but it was kind of like increasing volume by percentage instead of a set in stone number. Because I think right now, People You're going to like the new issue of mass. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to love that because I think that's the problem is I get questions all the time and, and people hear this number 20 and it's like, well, I got to do 20 sets. Like, I don't think so. Like I, I don't do 20 sets. I've been training for nine years. Like mm -hmm. um, I think I do 20 sets on my lats right now. And that's like right. over five sets a week compared to my other body parts. Um, but I think that's a really good way to kind of boil periodization down fiber tree. And I think that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong with this, but I think evidence-based, being evidence-based means you're looking at all this research, but you're also looking at experience and anecdote and, and what works for you and what works for your clients. And you explaining all the stuff these people have been looking through over the years and saying, well, we could do it this way, or we could do it this way, or we could do it this way. That's kind of what that is, in my opinion, is, is taking the science and using experience together. Science is observation, right? The observational method. But that's what scientific method is. So if we accept that all science is observations of different quality, 
anyone who rejects anecdote is kind of missing the boat. Anecdotes are the least controlled observations, but they are observations. They are the same as science. How controlled is your observation? How relevant is your observation? If you control it too much, you've maximized internal validity at the cost of external validity or what, I, what we would call ecological validity, meaning it has a relationship with the real world. If you put someone in a metabolic ward and you're just giving them food, you might learn about that food, but in the real world, they'd go to McDonald's, right? <laughs> yeah. Same kind of thing. So, so the anecdotes we have, the observations we see from people training and people in the field are equally important to science. It's just that the level of confidence you put in them is, should be different, you know? So you have to use anecdote. And the only thing that matters once you go out of the lab and into practice is what you observe with your clients and does it work? So it doesn't work despite what Smith et al. 1998 or whatever said, that doesn't change the fact that your client is not getting to their goals. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. And it, and it, it holds more value coming from somebody like you. So I love the way you broke that down. Um, and I'm going to, we're going to end it there. Cause I, I got to respect your time, man. This has been awesome. Uh, before I do let you go, can you please tell everybody where to find all of your uh, material that you put out? I mean, there's quite a few things. So if you want to shout out as many as you need and I'll put them all in the show notes. Thank you, dude. And this has been a, a, a great interview. I really appreciate your, your time and the respect you've shown me. Um, so um, best place to go is 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the, the number three, the letter D, then musclejourney.com. And the reason being from there, you can find links to the over 150 free podcast episodes, uh, all of the, the blog posts we've had on those sites, I think 2015 or 16. Uh, and from there, you can find the 3DMJ vault where we've got courses on how to do stuff free and paid if that's what you want to do we got links to the muscle and strength pyramids we got links to mass we talked about iron culture that's not linked from there so you might have to actually pop that into the google machine and then uh, you can also find my bio uh, there which has a link to my instagram which is at helms 3dmj and then the last thing i would say is nutrition coaching global mastermind if you are an actual uh, online coach or in-person coach who does nutrition coaching that's how you stay up to date with where the industry might be going I'll put all those in there, man. I'm, I'm actually subscribed to all of them. So I highly recommend the people. I'm honored. To grab them. So um, thank you for your time, man. I really, really do appreciate it. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up, or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.